Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Steeped in ancient Jewish lore and demiology, The Vigil is a supernatural horror film set over the course of a single evening in Brooklyn's Hasidic Borough Park neighborhood. Low on funds and having recently left his insular religious community, Yaakov reluctantly accepts an offer from his former rabbi and confidant to take on the responsibility for an overnight shomer. Fulfilling the Jewish practice of watching over the body of a deceased community member shortly after arriving at the recently departed dilapidated home to sit the vigil, Yaakov begins to realize that something is very, very wrong. And that is the, uh, <laughs> the synopsis, this backstory behind a terrific film called The Vigil. And we're joined today by the writer and the director of the film, and that would be Keith Thomas. Keith, welcome to Film School Radio. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I will let you know just right up front. Um, I don't generally seek out horror movies because uh, I, I I don't know why. I mean, it's just something unless and and this is the exception to the rule, and that is I hear from others that this is this is a, a, a film that's intelligent or well done or something about it that you know it stands out above your slasher sort of type <laughs> horror films. And I had a sense that just reading about this film, that this would be the kind of film I would like. And I was right. This is a really well done. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind The Vigil. So the inspiration kind of had a multiple threads, but the first was I wanted this to be my first feature film. So, you know, there's the standard adage of you write what you know, you fall back on what you know. If you want to make something that feels fresh and different, you go with something personal, something that you only can tell. It was, there's a bit of a mercenary approach in that I saw that there hadn't been a truly Jewish horror film before. Certainly not one set in this community and dealing with things from that perspective. So I thought that's a unique opportunity. I, I do know about the community and I'm familiar with this background. So that was something that I could tell. Um, at the same time, it came from a personal place. I had experience with the this community. I was, I'm not Hasidic or ex-Hasidic or raised in this community, but I am Jewish and I had studied theology uh, at a rabbinical school. So I understood, I'm not a rabbi, but I had studied there. So I understood a lot of the material behind this. And I thought that's, I can bring that in. And at the same time, uh, attempt to make something that is universal in terms of its themes while at the same, well, additionally kind of getting the visual uh, look and the feel that I kind of wanted to not necessarily show off, but kind of, you know, that would fit with this and something that, that I could that I could pull off at a certain budget. So it all kind of came together like that. You wrote the script. At what point did you feel like um, not only did you have what you needed to to be able to move forward with a film project, but as you just alluded to, there have not been very many. I want to make sure I'm characterizing this. Correctly. Sure. Yeah. No. How, how do you how do you characterize it? As a horror film. Yeah. Okay. And so there haven't been very many with a mm -hmm. based on a Jewish tradition, Jewish story was getting getting people convinced that you could make this work. What was the more <laughs> difficult challenges in, in getting this on screen for you? 
your first time filmmaker you know, the, the, as well. Right. So, right. So. You know, the, the, the hardest part really was getting to the point where I actually wrote it. I had been screenwriting at that point. This was 2018. I had been screenwriting for about eight years and I had sold some screenplays and I had worked with, you know, well-known Hollywood companies and things, but I don't think I'd found my voice. I, in terms of who I was as a writer and certainly as a filmmaker, it came very late to the game. I did not go to film school. I had a career as a clinical researcher. Uh, I was a novelist and I, I came to it by way of all sorts of random encounters that you know, you have over years, um, you know, sitting down and kind of writing this script, I, I felt like I had something fresh and original to say. I had just made a short film. That was my, really my, my, my very first kind of attempt at filmmaking. And that, that went well enough, you know, yeah. a short film, you're never going to make your money back, but uh, it can be a calling card and that's what it was. And so that short film opened the door for me to get the vigil script to certain people. It did take a little bit to convince people to let me direct it. Uh, there were people who wanted to just buy the script um, and they offered, uh, you know, a decent amount of money, but they weren't going to let me direct it. So I ended up turning them down. But when I met with my producers who ended up doing the movie, they kind of saw it on the page the, I wrote it in antithesis to the, the way I typically scripted something where you're not directing on the page, where you're just kind of telling the story and letting the director visualize it. I put everything into this. The, the script had all the sound design in it. The script had every camera move in it. So when they read it, they could see, okay, with the short film he made and kind of this, we get what this is and we're willing to risk some money on it. Congratulations on that working out. And let's go to this concept upon which this film hinges, which is the mm. idea of the overnight it's not something I was familiar with. Tell, uh, tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, this is a tradition that I, I suppose it's not that well known outside the Jewish community, though it is very common. Uh, it's considered a mitzvah. If you know what, what that means, it's a good deed. It's a it, beyond good deed. It's something that is a good in the eyes of the Lord, uh, something that you're doing to repair the world, a mitzvah. In, in most Jewish communities, when someone passes away, um, there are people who sit and watch the body. It's both a sign of respect for the body, but it has ancient ancient roots. This is a practice going back thousands of years, which maybe comes from, you know, protecting the body from rodents, things like that, but also from evil spirits. And from in Jew, the Jewish conception, the soul uh, does not ascend to heaven immediately after someone dies. The soul actually hovers above the body you know, they, they, there are people, you know, you can read measurements of it, but it's like three feet above the body. The soul is there. It lingers until the body goes into the earth. That is why Jews uh, bury their bodies uh, very quickly. There's no open, open casket. There's no embalming. The body has to go into the ground. The minute the body is in the earth, that is when the soul can ascend. So there's a fragile moment when there's a body with a soul still hanging by it, at which, you know, you could have these sorts of influences. So that's kind of where the Shomer idea comes from. Um, almost 99% of the time, it is friends and family who watch the body. And they don't do it alone. They usually do it in shifts or they're doing it in teams. But in the Hasidic community, in the ultra-Orthodox community, there are paid Shomers. There are people who are paid to watch the body 
uh, for someone who has no family, someone who's passed away, like an elderly person who has no no nearby relatives, um, they will watch the body until it is put in the ground. And so they're paid to do that. And that was, for me, very fascinating, that sort of that, that concept. Um, and so, yeah, that's the central, the central idea here. Let's talk about the, uh, the casting, because uh, we have a wonderful lead character of, of Yakov, played by Dave uh, Davis. Uh, how did you come across him? I ha- again, he's someone I'm not familiar with, but he just commands the screen as a real presence to him. Where where did you come across uh, Dave? Yeah, Dave. Dave's an interesting guy. He's this this very kind of chameleon like actor who a lot of people have seen. They just don't know they've seen him because of the different roles he's played. But he was in the first season of True Detective. He was in The Walking Dead. He was in the film Logan as kind of character character actor parts. So I had seen them in all those things and it didn't realize it uh, for a lot of it, but I was casting for my lead and looking at a lot of really wonderful actors who had come from the Hasidic community, who spoke Yiddish, who knew that world in and out. And I wasn't quite finding kind of what my gut told me Yaakov is because you, you build this character in your head when you're writing the script and you're visualizing the film and you know, you're just looking for that one person that's kind of embodies all those things. And I happened to be taking a break from casting and I was just watching randomly a movie called Bomb City, which is set in Texas in the early 80s. And it's about a punk. It's a true story about a kind of this, this group of punks who were harassed and ultimately one of them was killed um, by, uh, you know, by some jocks. And Dave Davis played the lead punk. He, he had a three foot high green mohawk leather jacket with chains and spikes but i could kind of see two things when i when i saw him number one it was just this expressiveness yes and this sort of raw emotion on his face i could see it right away and i said that this is the kind of guy the second thing i knew is us jews we can we can identify members of the tribe and so i knew i knew even though his name's dave davis i could tell this guy's jewish um and i was right (laughs) and so uh uh, contacted him and he read the script and loved it. And he just threw himself into this thing, but it was a great example for me of trusting your gut and just kind of knowing what you're really looking for. There were a lot of amazing actors that I saw, but they didn't quite fit this thing in my head. And I was lucky enough to find that in Dave. Yeah. And what you said is the word I was exactly going to use, which is his expressiveness, his face. He has a face, and in the course of the film, it changes in within a scene. He can go from you know pure fright to uh, vulnerability to, and then into a kind of uh, um, stand your ground sort of. Uh, he does a lot with his face, his expressiveness, and that's exactly the word that I would use to describe his performance. A terrific call on that. There are others who are in the film, but the one thing that I wanted to talk about that slipped my mind earlier, which is there was uh, apparently quite a bit of, uh, and you sought out a lot of kind of uh, uh, cooperation from people in the Hasidic community. You were looking for sort of uh, advisors, consultants. I know you're familiar enough with this to be able to do it by yourself maybe, but also you, you seem to have sought out to bring this level of authenticity to the film. Talk a little yeah. bit about how, how that came about. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's exactly the right word was authenticity is that 
for lots of reasons, I wanted to make this as authentic as possible, both in terms of grounding the story and the characters, but also creating a, a, a real space, not only for them to act in, but uh, for the story to unfold in. It, it is a real, a real community, a real world. And I wanted to represent it as effectively and authentically as I could. So yeah, in the opening scenes of the movie, there's a scene where we're at a uh, dinner table in which there are members of a support group meeting. And all the folks at that table, with the exception of Dave Davis, are members of an ex-Hasidic community. They all came, came from that. And the stories they're telling are all real stories. And they really informed a lot of the film, um, particularly from everything from the production design, the house that we filmed in is a, is a real house in Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, but the level of detail that we wanted in there in terms of, for example, there's a coffee table in front of the couch where, where, uh, Yaakov is sitting, uh, he's sitting in an armchair and there's a little coffee table in front of him. There's a jar of candies. There's a bowl of candies that are sitting on that table. We, we never have an insert or anything of the candies, but they're sitting there and they are from a very specific candy shop in Borough Park. That, that only Hasidic Jews would have this on their table. So that level of realism, I, I needed that both to create the world in the atmosphere, but also to be true to the story. I, I didn't want to kind of just create it. That would be crass and it would just, it, it wouldn't be as effective to kind of what I was trying to get at is I wanted it to be the audience getting a view into a world they may not have seen before and making that view as authentic as possible uh, with the addition of a demon. So that was the, the approach. Yeah. One of our minor listeners were talking with Keith Thomas. He is the writer and director of this wonderful film called The Vigil. It is an IFC midnight release. You can go to ifcfilms.com and you can find out more information about the film as well as when it'll be screening, how you can watch it. And I strongly recommend you do. If you like horror films, you will love this film. And to Going back to the question of authenticity, bringing in people from the Hasidic community to really help you flesh that out. Uh, I think in the world of this kind of film where it's it's based in religious tradition, I think The Exorcist sort of is held out as as an example of that um, one of the one of the scariest and most successful horror films of all time. And it uses this strong Christian Catholic religious iconography, religious text, religious traditions in order to bring about what is truly one of the most frightening films I've ever seen. And I think that is so smart because why not go with something that has this, this tradition, these experiences, the, the, all of the things that you want to bring into a film where you're trying to take people out of a comfort zone, bring in all of these different traditions and and our need for religion is in some part uh, the need to explain the unexplainable. And why not? That is, that, that's to me a formula for creating an environment for a wonderful story to be told. And that's what we have here. I, I agree. Any sort of supernatural horror is automatically sort of invoking the idea that there is an afterlife and there's something beyond this life. And the way in which humans sort of uh, navigate that is through religion. Uh, and it plays just such an instrumental role. At the same time, religion and thoughts of the afterlife and our existence 
raise a lot of fears and, and that's where the horror films can pray <laughs> can pray on that and set up those things i i love the idea that uh you know it's funny you see a lot of ghost films and all these ghosts are so evil uh which is odd because a lot of the people around us are not and yet it's funny they they die and become these evil things but it, it's kind of playing at this idea of yes you can have this beautiful afterlife where you can go and run through a field with your grandmother but at the same time there's a, a a bad afterlife there's some other thing out there that could intrude in this world and and affect us and so for for me as a huge fan of the exorcist as well and i wanted to kind of make a jewish exorcist in a way yeah. um especially since the jewish conception of an afterlife and and evil uh is different it has a lot of the same themes. We can see a lot of the same structure, the rituals and these sorts of things make sense to us. Even if, if, you know, there's a scene in the film where our, our lead puts on to fill in, which is uh, straps, these leather straps that are bound upon the arm and the head. And they, they have very specific ritual uh, meaning behind them, but they are important for ritual, but they are also spiritual armor, which is a very sort of classic sort of theme in this sort of thing. It's a trope. You see it in the evil dead when he puts the chainsaw on his hand, you know, that this is, he's gearing up for battle and it's the same sort of thing, but people get it. It's a universal aspect. Um, even though we're, we're telling a story about demonology through, you know, a different approach in terms of in Judaism, they're, there isn't really a hell or a devil the same way there is in Christianity and demons come from a different place. Um, they still kind of have the same effect on us in, in terms of scares and in the way we, 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 we think about our, our lives beyond. Yeah. And there, there's even, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but there's even kind of a visual tip of the hat to the exorcist in the character <laughs> of Reb Shulin who yeah. is waiting outside the apartment where uh, where Yakov is waiting for him to come out and apparently waiting for quite some time for him to come out to make him this proposal to be the shomer for that night it looked an awful lot like the priest standing <laughs> at the in the light of in the exorcist is am i am i completely off, off no no you're yeah yeah totally it's definitely a tip of the hat and there you know there's a sequence when they are walking up the stairs to the house <laughs> and the silhouette Reb Shulam silhouette is, you know, <laughs> almost identical. It was something that I had hoped for. I wasn't sure we would get, and it wasn't until we were shooting it. Any anyway, obviously it's a different perspective and it's a different situation, but I could see it. There's a, there's a certain frame where you hit it and you're like, yep, that's, that's a hundred percent what that is. This homage. I, I just loved it. I loved it. In fact, it, I mean, I, I know this is, I know by reading about the, the film, I know what it's going to be a horror film. So my, when my cinematic <clears throat> brain, I started looking for things that are kind of, mm. you know, just the things that tip me off as a, as a viewer to what the film is about. Obviously I'm looking for clues. You're, that's one of the things about horror films. I think more, almost more than anything, except maybe specifically an Agatha Christie film. But with horror films, you're looking for clues almost immediately. At least mm -hmm. I do, right? You're looking for things that are maybe going to come back, you know, <laughs> an right. important part of a, a film, you know, explaining what's happening in a film. So for me, my, my antenna are always up. And while, while we're talking about cinematography and sound design, these are two things that are just outstanding in this film. Uh, and so I want to identify Zach Cooperstein as the, uh, mm -hmm. the dir uh, director of photography on this, as well as your composer, Michael 
Yerzaki. Yazerski. Yazerski. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Terrific stuff. Just really well done. Just anything you want to say about the, what they did, what they brought to the project, please feel yeah, free. Yeah, I mean, they really, they were, they were absolutely uh, integral and amazing partners on this. You know, Zach and I spent a lot of time on our shot list. And we were, you know, very, uh, very thorough. We, we even photo boarded the movie. Uh, so we had a, essentially a little flip book that you could watch the whole thing. I was a stand in for all the, the, the characters, but we, but we shot this photo boarding with the lenses, the, the Kawa lenses that we're going to be using. So it was the lighting, all these aspects, uh, you know, almost 99% of the effects are in camera as well. And th- that was stuff that we spent a ton of time on to just get that right. And the same went on in post in terms of our sound design and the score and how those two merged you know, when you're in a con- very contained setting like this, it's crucial that you open it up as much as possible. So we, sh- we shot anamorphic. We, you know, I, it was important that each of the rooms in the house had a different feel. The upstairs felt different than the downstairs. There's different lighting schemes going on to broaden the thing out. And then sonically, you, you kind of creating this world. And I knew from the very beginning, even my very first draft, that 60% of this thing was going to be hinging on the sound design. Yeah. Uh, so that was something we even in during the course of production we were working on and you know we had just had an amazing team that really kind of invested a lot in 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 bringing that all together um it's yeah. exciting yeah did did the actual walls our perception of the walls inside the apartment change i i thought i saw a couple of times where it looked like you the, i don't know it looked like the whole room kind of changed configuration <laughs> at a, a couple of points in the film is yeah, it was a lot of a lot of it was lighting effects and you know okay. and moving some furniture around and kind of shifting it to essentially we wanted by the end there's a certain turning point in the film yeah uh, you know where he's waking up in the chair yeah. and we wanted to feel the place to feel empty and you really switching the lights around and kind of just leaving him in this void essentially. Um, there was one sequence where we actually did build on a stage and that's the hallway sequence towards the end mm-hmm. where we had a lot of, you know, forced perspective and kind of trick stuff going on in there. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, for the most part, it was you know, just, just, uh, just playing with the lighting and uh, yeah. kind of trying to manipulate the, 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 the atmosphere. I want to throw this out there to any uh, filmmakers, up and coming filmmakers, new filmmakers or whatever, watch this film. Uh, for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is you found basically one location and you worked the hell out of it. And I think <laughs> I think this is so important because you're not going to have a lot of money for your first film, but find something that that you can really work with and just and work it. And I felt like you really got a lot out of basically one location. Yeah, thank you. We we we're lucky enough to find that house. It was actually owned by one of our executive producers and was set to be gutted and remodeled. When I got into that space, it amazingly fit pretty closely to my storyboards. I didn't realize we could find a place that looked as similar. And it came with you know, the, the, the drapery and the carpets were all the same as the previous occupant, uh, an elderly woman. So I kept those. And even though it was very tight uh, and we had dolly tracks running through this place, and, you know, when I look at the film now, I can see exactly where everyone's hiding, you know, behind what walls and how many people are stuck in that in that closet over there and who's hiding underneath the actual body. 
you know, yeah, we had to maximize it. I knew this is where we're going to live. We we're going to be shooting in that house for 16 consecutive nights. And uh, it was a matter of, yeah, maximizing it as much as possible, given our budget and, you know, our shooting days and what we could do to make that truly a world. Yeah, it, yeah, you did. And again, it's so amazingly important. It's so important to the success of a film is to be able to to get the most out of what the assets you have. And mm-hmm. it really, you really made it work on so many different levels. Now, just before I let you go, not only was it your cast, but your your crew did a remarkable job. And as I was looking through some of the previous work, um, I, I remember I, I interviewed the director of Minot. Is it M- Minosh? Am I saying? Oh yeah, Menasha. Menasha. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed. I forgot the director's name, but I I had mm-hmm. him on the program. Wonderful stuff. And then was it? Did Zach work on Eyes of My Mother? Yeah. Yep. Eyes of My Mother. Not that too was many people. Of, not too many people yeah. have lived to tell the tale after watching. <laughs> that is one of the most harrowingly scary, yes. screwed up. I want to use an F word to describe just <laughs> how I, I, you know, and uh, the director's actually, I've actually had him on for a couple of things. He did something after that called the piercing. Wow. I, I told him I, 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 you couldn't pay me to be his therapist. I mean, <laughs> I, so uh, I just some good people, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, I got very, very lucky in that this script kind of attracted the, these super talented people who, you know, all very young and kind of very energetic. Uh, and I had seen the eyes of my mother and I, you know, I thought, wow, Zach could, Zach could really blow this away. And he, he recently did another film that came out just before the vigil um, called The Climb, which. Uh, oh, I've been uh, trying to get that's yeah, yeah. the comedy, the comedy. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically, it's, it's, it's shot in, 10 10 minute wonders which okay. is incredible okay. and you know zach yeah he's just an incredibly talented dp and i knew after eyes of my mother that he could do this that he was gonna be able not only get those scares but uh to to shoot the hell out of it in terms of you know capturing the emotion and uh, oh, yeah. you know the look we wanted keith i'm not wrong eyes of my mother is pretty effed up stuff right it I mean, is it is yeah, no it's okay. very yeah, it messed me up that's for sure yeah okay all right, I just want to make sure. Just check it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you're well, right. You're right. <laughs> well, uh, th- uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, finding some time to come and join us. Uh, the film is The Vigil. Before I say goodbye, I want to let people know that they can go to IFC. Uh, let me make sure you get, I get it. IFCfilms.com. And you can find out more about The Vigil. You can find out how to watch it. And you should, again, look for this. And... Uh, Otherwise, writer, director, Keith Thomas, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 